June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This is Ion Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the U.S. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Ion Veterans. Ion Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Ion Veterans is a weekly program focused on the men and women who have served our nation in uniform and their families. Now on this episode, we're going to honor one of the most important themes of the month of September, and that's suicide awareness and prevention. And along the way, we'll meet a few veterans whose stories will give you hope and help us all learn what we can do on the daily to make a difference. You know, how many times have you walked past someone in the hallway and you're heading out and you say, hey, how you doing? And the person says, not so good. And you just kind of go, hmm, and keep moving. A friend of ours in our unit of about 300 people um, committed suicide and then uh, one committed after mm. when we, upon our return. We think we can solve our own problems always, so we hold things in until maybe it gets too much for us. Sat there for a few minutes crying, looking at a spot on the wall. And uh, I remember I charged the weapon and I uh, put the barrel in my mouth and I still remember that metallic taste. As I'm literally squeezing the trigger with my thumb, the enemy couldn't kill you, and now you're gonna you're gonna do it for him. Um, he lit the fire under my ass and gave me, you know, the tough love that I needed to get my together. Um, wouldn't be where I am without it. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. And this episode, like others we'll cover in the month of September, will dedicate to suicide awareness and prevention. Uh, we're gonna talk about some stories that completely touch your heart. And this next one, I have to admit, I'm reading the bio they sent me at the front of this interview because it is so damn compelling. This is the story of David Sharp, a sixth generation veteran. He was just 21 years old when two men from his unit in the Air Force Security Forces sadly took their own life. One of them had recently been married and had a one-year-old daughter. Well, of course, this affected him greatly. And he found himself in a spiral of PTSD and survivor's guilt and couldn't find adequate treatment. One day, a friend asked if he would go with him to a pit bull rescue. There were eight puppies, and they were all rescued from a local dogfighting ring. One of them was a little five-month-old girl that didn't really pay him a lot of attention. So, of course, that was the puppy that David adopted, and he named it Cheyenne. Now, sadly, his PTSD symptoms heightened. When they got to their worst... He had finished a bottle of Jack Daniels. And in the story we've heard so many times, went to his bedroom, 
removed the 45 caliber pistol from the top drawer. With the gun in his mouth, he began to look at the wall and cry, and he started to squeeze that trigger. And Cheyenne wouldn't let him, interrupting the whole affair. Well, one month later, sadly, David found himself again in that same spiral. This time, he shut the door and latched it, prepared to meet the end. With the same pistol his father had used in ranger school, he picked up the gun and began to do the unthinkable. And this time, Cheyenne busted through the door to save his life. Inspired, he founded Companions for Heroes, a service that connects veterans with shelter, dogs, and cats, and helps save lives each and every day through their companionship. Which is why it is my pleasure to talk and kind of explore this story a little bit further. Air Force veteran David Sharp. David, thank you so much for sharing your story. Welcome to the show, my friend. Wow, that's a wonderful introduction. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm humbled and I'm thankful for being on the show. Indeed. You come to us uh, from our friends at Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families. And uh, we're going to take a long way here to talk about how to kind of start your own business and how the birth of this business came from such a uh, just such a touching moment in life and something that we all need to focus on. So let's begin with you, David, Air Force veteran, Air Force Security Forces. Tell me a little bit about your MOS and your time in the service. I came in in 1999. Um, my, my dad, you, you mentioned it earlier in that he was an army ranger. And so I was, uh, he gave me an ultimatum. He said, you can go into, uh, the military, which I don't think you're cut out for, or you can go, um, come home here and work and go to school at the community college. And I said, I'm not going to stay at home. And so uh, I accepted his, his ultimatum of proving him wrong and going into the military. I wanted to do uh, army like he, uh, but he told me to go air force. And so I went security forces. Here domestically, we are pretty much um, police, military police here overseas. Uh, we set up bases, uh, do convoys, um, or we go to little hole-in-the-wall places of the earth that you would never even think would ima- possibly imagine. Myself, I went to uh, Saudi Arabia, um, was where it all started, where I had a um, I had some incidents happen to me. Uh, one was a, a Saudi guard turned his uh, MP5 on me in a gate shack. And um, that's where every, the Air Force was running its operations at the time um, for Afghanistan, right after 9-11. This was around uh, November, December 2001. Um, of course, before we deployed, a, f- a friend of ours in our unit of about 300 people um, committed suicide, and then uh, one committed after, when we, upon our return. Um, so it, it, was, it was tough. David explained his slide into depression. Now, in this case, we're viewing it through the eyes of a military veteran. But when you hear him describe it and the details, it's easy to imagine how a traumatic life event could send any of us down a very similar path. Got depressed. Uh, one, one of my friends, like I said, he had a one-year-old son and he had a wife. His wife was in our unit as well. and Got to see what she went through and it was not pretty. And I will tell you that uh, the darkness set in on me because I'm the only kid. I'm single and really started putting my, uh, my blame on, on the Father, on God. And I uh, got really low and uh, started drinking. And I eventually got to the point where I was so depressed that um, I went out, got my 45 pistol my father gave me. I literally sat down on the bedroom floor 
put my back against my bed and I had my dog Cheyenne at the time get out of my bedroom and I remember I closed the door and locked it because I didn't want this is what happens when you get into this deep dark place you start thinking about others and not yourself so you know I had a security deposit I didn't want that security deposit to be taken by someone kicking in the door you know if I locked it and they find my body laying there in the bedroom I wanted to ensure that they found it without destroying the apartment, so to speak. So my, my family would get my security deposit. That's how detailed you get when you get dark like this mm. and thinking of others. So I latched it, closed the door, and uh, sat there for a few minutes crying, looking at a spot on the wall. And then, uh, I remember I charged the weapon, and I put the barrel in my mouth, and I still remember that metallic taste um, in the barrel. And... As I'm literally squeezing the trigger with my thumb, Cheyenne, uh, the pit bull I rescued months earlier, budged through that door and licked my, my left cheek. And I'll, uh, it distracted me, of course, made me laugh. And so, uh, you know, I always define that as uh, divine intervention. The God gives us angels, and sometimes they're not just two-legged. They're four-legged as well. And mm-hmm. so I always like to say, spell dog backwards, uh, which is pretty cool. That is awesome, man. That is absolutely awesome. Yeah, it was great, man. Thank you. So uh, I, I tried again a month later, same scenario, drinking, um, closed the door, latched, moved my dog out of the bedroom, did the same thing again, had the barrel in my mouth. And uh, again, she walked through the door. And at that time, that's when I said, all right, I'm done. Obviously, you know, the Almighty has something better planned for me. And indeed, there was another plan. But there would be another deployment ahead. Only this one would be different. We'll hear how this near tragic ending was the start of a new business venture that now connects veterans with life-saving animals everywhere. When CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And on today's show, we're talking about suicide awareness and prevention with a few vets whose stories can give you hope and help us all learn what we can do to make a difference. Now we'll return to our interview with David Sharp, an Air Force veteran who faced his own suicidal moments after some of his close Air Force buddies took their own life. Still hurting from their deaths and agonizing over the thought of the wife and children they left behind, it was more than he could take. But before he could pull the trigger and take his own life, he was interrupted twice by his dog. We now pick back up with David and hear how he turned near tragedy into the business that today helps veterans everywhere. And so, you know, I deployed again to Pakistan in 2004, and um, an incident happened there. And then um, we we came back, and all I could think about was getting back to my dog, not see my family, my mom, my dad. It was just my dog. 
And so I had a purpose. And that that's the big theme to this is when we're in the military, we have a purpose. Our purpose is to be with our brothers and sisters beside them to be a unit and to take care of each other. And then when you get out of the military, or sometimes even when you're in, you lose that purpose. And when you get out of the military, you really don't have a purpose sometimes. And so that's where, you know, having Cheyenne help me where I had a purpose. And that was, I had to take care of her kind of like a child, you know, even though I was single had no children, she was my child. And I had to ensure that when I got out, I had a good job, at least enough to take care of her, take care of myself and uh, focus on, on her as opposed to focusing on the, the wounds that I endured, which were very minimal compared to many, many women out there who have endured so much more than I. And that's what propelled me uh, further in 2009 to, uh, to help others in need. I was watching a segment on, uh, I remember one of the news channels, national news channels, and they were talking about service dogs, that they're, they're getting them from breed, they're breeding them for this. It takes two years to do. It costs, on average, fifty to sixty-five thousand dollars per dog. And while I love that, and that's great, and I definitely um, lift up those organizations that do that type of work today. Still, um, there was also a need of of those who needed something immediately, uh, within weeks, if not days, of a dog. And so. That's where I started researching and learned that no one was pairing up shelter dogs, saving them out of shelters, rescue main societies, and placing them with veterans at the time and active duty members. You said it all right there, and yet there's so many more things we can say. Uh, I want to get into how you founded the business and the resources available for veterans for that. But before we do, uh, you know what? I just wanted to ask. Do you find that like even in our social media consumption, even in what we're watching in the daily news, I mean, it can be something that can kind of wreck your head. Were you finding that like there was just no respite from it? I, I would say I, it goes back to I lack the purpose. Um, suicide, as we know, and the studies prove this, that it's a selfish act. And I was being completely selfish of, of myself <clears throat> and who I was. You know, I was feeling sorry. For my buddy, both of them, but um, mostly the trigger point was, you know, my buddy who uh, had a one-year-old son and had a wife. An interesting connection there with life having a purpose and the purpose in your case, becoming Cheyenne, becoming that dog and a purpose that you now give other veterans and um, just doing phenomenal work. Talk to me about Companions for Heroes. And I take it that is where the National Veterans Resource Center and the Institute of Veterans and Military and Families came in. Absolutely. Um, you know, I was, never have a business degree. You know, I got a degree in criminology. Never knew how to start and run a business. And, you know, the Institute for Veterans and Military Families provide that opportunity and accepted, the, accepted me in into their EBV program, um, which is, uh, you know, for entrepreneurs who are either started a business or looking to start a business. And they provide uh, a lot of subject matter experts to come in and speak with you. They provide all the travel. And there's no other place that you can go at no cost to veterans, active duty members, and their families, their spouses, who want to start a business or who have started a business. 
and give them the tools, the resources, and the connection. That's the biggest thing, the networking. And you have you still get the connection with these subject matter experts after you leave that uh, two-week course. Uh, what sort of tactile things, what things were you able to pick up that you put into action? I learned that 98% of veterans who start a business, they think it happens overnight. And then if it doesn't, uh, within the first six months, they start a business that they quit. Hmm. And so, yeah. And so uh, the Institute of Veterans and Military Families taught me, number one, you know, I already had a business plan, but it wasn't written properly. It didn't have realistic goals. It didn't have expectations of personnel. Um, also learned how to do evaluations of personnel, the team members with the charity. Um, learned how to um, get in contact with the Department of Veterans Affairs to become an approved vendor for them uh, for, so they can refer veterans to us. And they don't have to get in trouble because they're a government agency and they're not showing favoritism. Oh, right, right. Interest. Okay. Um, just learning and connecting from other entrepreneurs, actually your teammates, your classmates, that was huge as well. And it sounds like it's really helped you grow and to scale and to sort of put that into perspective. Share with me how big Companions for Heroes is right now. So right now, uh, Companions for Heroes, we have five team members. Um, we have a chief operating officer. She is a active duty army spouse. Um, we have the program and training director. She is a uh, was an active duty army spouse, but now she's a uh, veteran spouse of the army ranger. We have another gentleman um, who is our grants director, and then we have our office administrator. And we uh, we have serviced hundreds and hundreds of uh, veterans, active duty, law enforcement, first responders across the country and hundreds of uh, dogs have been saved. I'm thankful to them because they had the courage to reach out for help. A lot of us who are at a low point, like I was when I was uh, suicidal in uh, 2002, I, I didn't want to reach out for help because of pride. Um, so I thank them and I lift them up to God for really, truly asking for help. One hell of a great story. I can't thank you enough for sharing it. The business is Companions for Heroes. And uh, tell me more about where I can find that online. It's companionsforheroes.org. Companionsforheroes.org. Uh, just click on apply. If you need help. And uh, we'll have our Sarah, who's our program and training director. She'll start the interview, go through the process, and uh, looking to, to help you out. And again, uh, None of this would have been ever possible with helping expanding our services to serve more veterans, and we call them heroes out there, law enforcement, first responders, and nurses, if it weren't for Institute for Veterans and Military Families. Outstanding. I'll say this just from my own family experience. Nothing has changed a weekend in our life than when we recently brought in my relative's dog and took care of it for the weekend. And my kids, yeah. everything. I mean, like the whole house was just so full of laughter. Uh, it is so awesome to get woken up in the morning with a lick in the face. And I got to say, man, you're doing great stuff with that. Uh, really just appreciate your time. Man. 
All right, man, man, I appreciate you, brother, and uh, thank you for spotlighting these organizations. Appreciate it. Now ahead, we'll hear from Army veteran Darlene Taylor. She was once a sergeant major who counseled and inspired young soldiers. But she learned how to inspire and counsel others for a living after experiencing her own difficult transition. I think because of my rank, a lot of people assume you have it. But guess what? I get home at night and I sit there and I say, you ain't got it. Darling, you don't know what you're doing. And I absolutely did not. You know, if you spend 30 years in the military, um, you think you know a lot. So I was kind of in this place where I didn't know and I didn't want to ask. That's ahead on CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And in our next segment, we'll meet Darlene Taylor, who served in the U.S. Army, retiring as a command sergeant major. But for Sergeant Major Taylor, whose very rank was the senior one that soldiers turned to when they really needed help, getting a job and defining her life after the Army was seriously difficult. You know, and I think because of my rank, a lot of people assume you have it. But guess what? I get home at night and I sit there and I say, you ain't got it. Darling, you don't know what you're doing. And I absolutely did not. You know, if you spend 30 years in the military, um, you think you know a lot, but you don't know a lot about the private sector. And as far as finding a job, I never had to find a job in my life because I joined the military right out of high school. So I was kind of in this place where I didn't know and I didn't want to ask. But after she turned to Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families, she completed the Onward to Opportunity program, and she would eventually become a health educator and suicide prevention coordinator. And today, she works as a suicide prevention program manager. In the spirit of Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, we'll pick back up on the part of the interview where Darlene offered some incredible advice. When we talk about suicide, we look for behaviors first is the way people, things that people say and ways that people act. And what I normally try to, when I was teaching this on a regular basis, what I would tell people is you're looking for signs that are different than the person's norm. So for example, if I'm always reserved and I'm reserved, then that might not be a sign for me. But if I'm a very outward going person and all of a sudden you see me being withdrawn and I'm not, and I'm not acting like myself, they may be signs especially if you are identifying that the person is having other problems in their life that they may not be able to cope with. So um, what kind of words you were looking for is someone who says, you know, people might be better, you might be better off without me or, you know, or people that are giving away things. I know we always hear that when people are giving away things that may be a sign. Um, Other signs might be just changes in mood and behavior, just minor changes. And and I want to say that, um, one of the things that I talked about, you know, when you talk about risk factors associated with suicide, we talk about potentially transitions in your life, you know, things that have changed, like divorce, you know, or loss of someone that you love, or a loss of an identity. Like, for example, if you have been associated with the military for a really long time, and now all of a sudden you're transitioning out, you might not know what to do. You might feel hopeless, you might feel helpless, and... Those are the kind of things that we're looking for. So we're looking for um, knowing people because first you have to know me kind of to identify some of the signs. Okay. And then 
uh, picking up on the nuances of change in those people. Mm-hmm. I thank you for saying that because I think all of those all those principles are related to the last little bit that we spoke of earlier, and that is understanding suicidal ideation as the end. I think that a lot of people have ideation. There are way more people who have ideation than attempt. You know, you can't stop what someone thinks about, but you can help them through their problems. And, and I think for me, that was always the key. Like, I can't control what you're thinking, but what I can do is I can let you know that I'm here and I care and I know this. You know, I used to, uh, when I taught class, one of the things I would say is, you know, how many times have you walked past someone in the hallway? You know, you're on your way to do this briefing and you got the slides in your hand and you're heading out and you say, hey, how you doing? And the person says, not so good. And you just kind of go, hmm, and keep moving. Well, we, we can't do that. What we have to do is we have to stop and take time to really identify and see what's going on with people in our lives. If you can't do it that moment, turn around and come back because connections are the key to preventing. You know, I know you've heard that term, suicide is preventable. I think a lot of people are stepping away from that as much because I think it puts a stigma on people who have lost people to suicide and they feel like, well, if it's preventable, I should have been able to prevent it. Um, and I, I think we're stepping away from that. But what we want to say is suicide prevention is everyone's business. It's everyone's business. We have to be actively engaged in it. And I think earlier you mentioned something that i just like to mention. So September is Suicide Prevention Month. September 6th to 12th is National Suicide Prevention Week. But suicide prevention is a 365-day-a-year event. We have to be engaged with people and connected all the time. Mm-hmm. And I especially love that example of you're walking down the hallway or you're walking through somewhere and you see somebody you know, hey, what's up? Oh, man, it's not so good. Yeah, you can't shrug that off. It is all of our job. And you know we have to be our brother's keeper. We have to if we're going to get through this crazy world you know, together, because we're all going to get some dents and some dings. And it's especially nice why I want to talk about it, not just with the military members and the military community, but on this show, which airs on so many news stations around the country and is going to hit people that are not military members or not in our community. Um, It's okay to know that this applies to you, too. You know, we all are going to get some dents and some dings in this world and and we need to be there for each other. Uh, some of the other things I was interested to hear from you um, are about preventative mental health. Like, what do you feel are the greatest opportunities for bettering our own mental health? I know a lot of this is what we can do for others, but what can we do for ourselves? I, I think um, if, I had to, if I had to look at what we can do for ourselves is we should seek help when we have problems. You know, we live in a society often where we don't want to go. We think we can solve our own problems always. So we hold things in until maybe it gets too much for us. So I, I would say, you know, starting out right initially, if you have a problem, then go ahead and seek help for it. You know, it could be small. You know, you over you overwrite your checkbook $5 every every week, right? And it seems like a small amount. Oh, you know, in a month it's 20 bucks. What's the big deal? Well, what happens if you continue to do that? What if you have, you know, you continue to do that and you never seek help? Then you, you have a problem in the end, you know, and the problem may be larger than just the $5. So what I would say is, you know, when you identify problems and you don't know how to solve them or you're unsure, then go out and seek help and don't be afraid, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help because there are so many services available to help service members as well as veterans, as well as you civilians, uh, you know, that are not affiliated with the military. There are so many programs, but we can't let the small problems get big. We need to cut off their oxygen. Mm. 
you know, we need to seek services and get help for the small things. And once we do that, you know, it'll help us, you know, down the road because small problems won't become large problems. Large problems won't make us feel like we can't control the problem. You know, I mean, I mean, those small problems, if we take care of them, you know, it won't get to the point where we don't think we can control it. So I think the key is really is, is seeking help where you need help. And also another key I would say is, you know, working on our own resiliency as, as individuals, you know, taking care of yourself. That means eating right, exercising, you know, those things that help you feel good. Because, you know, those things would help you through when you are having problems, when you're having stress. And if you go out for, you know, I mean, you're a veteran, I'm a veteran, you know, one of the greatest stress relievers I ever had was getting out on on the PT field in the morning and getting a good run in, you know. And it it takes off some of the pressure and some of the angst that, you know, that you may be experiencing throughout the day. And I remember it even as a young veteran myself when I first got out of the Navy. Uh, My buddy and I used to surf. Man, I, I didn't have but a few thousand bucks to my name. I, I didn't know where I was going. I wasn't sure, you know, if I was going to get the right job. I wasn't sure I was going to get a career. I didn't have a girlfriend. I, you know, I was a hot mess. But every morning we'd get out there, we'd touch some other nature. And for some reason, that bond, just doing that with my buddy, it was the activity. It was just getting out and getting that fresh air and being able to talk to someone. And you brought up both those points. And sometimes maybe totally. instead of letting it get to an emotional deficit, you know, treat it before you got a huge debt. And if that means you call up a therapist, if that means you call up, you know, um, Aunt Darlene and, you know, she's got some good advice for you. Just just <laughs> get that treated, get that talked about and uh, get it out and get it walked about. Um, thank you very much, Darlene. Can I add two things? Oh, you most certainly may. We would be remiss if we didn't mention that if anyone needs to talk to someone, they have options. So 1-800-273-TALK is a suicide lifeline. They're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and people can reach out and seek help. But another one that I found that I'd like to mention really quick that I used to talk to young service members about a lot is you can text hello to 741741, and, that, and that's the suicide text line. And... They really are helpful, and a lot of younger people who don't like to use the telephone um, prefer that. And one of the things that I learned about that program was that a lot of people who who text them don't text them about suicide. They text them about life problems. So you can get early seeking of help, you know, if you're feeling, uh, you know, like you need some, by just texting hello to 741-741. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, in our final segment today, we'll hear the story about suicide prevention and awareness from one of the most powerful veterans I've ever met. In 2019, I had the pleasure of meeting three incredible veterans, as myself and Cadence 13 produced to war and back. One of them was Marine Corps veteran Kirstie Ennis. During the podcast, she shared with me her incredible story of surviving a helicopter crash. To this day, I'll say that her testimony about suicide is one of the most powerful that I've ever heard. This time, on To War and Back. Walking in and seeing her so sick, there was that one point where, you know, she thought she wasn't going to make it because of the MRSA and the infections that she got while in the hospital. It was kind of a shock going in. I was just drinking way too much, and I'm not proud to share it, but, you know, 
taking pain medications and mixing it with alcohol and doing that risky behavior, trying to replicate that intensity where I almost killed myself. My dad came to me and uh, with tears in his eyes, he said, the enemy couldn't kill you and now you're going to do it for him. Made me realize that there's a lot of families of loved ones who never made it home looking at me. And that sat with me. Welcome back. I'm Phil Briggs, a journalist and a Navy veteran, and this is the story of three American combat vets, U.S. Marine Corps Sergeant Kirstie Ennis, U.S. Marine Corps Major Scott Husing, and U.S. Army veteran Sergeant Boone Cutler. So I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. I never like asking people about their injuries or recovery, and especially suicide. I mean, it's not exactly easy to go, hey, tell me about one of the worst days of your life. But after talking with Kirstie, she made it easy to talk about the helicopter crash that ultimately cost her her leg. So I was hopeful that she'd be equally comfortable telling me about one of the darkest days of her life. Uh, I'd read somewhere that your dad actually kind of gave you a real big shot of inspiration. Yeah, no. Um, so I don't know if my doctors really did me a favor, if it was a disservice in the long run, but right off the bat, after I made it back stateside and in my recovery, my doctors, you know, my command, everybody was coming back to me and saying, oh God, Kirsty, you're going to, you're going to stay in. You're going to go to the drill field and be the first female drill instructor with a prosthetic. And they gave me all the, like they've, <laughs> fed me all of these lines um, and it gave me hope to continue trying and, you know, I'm going to go back and hit the fleet. I'm going back on active duty. But then as this all evolved, you know, I was found unfit for duty twice and it was mainly because of the spinal cord issues and then from my neck up. And in that moment, I just felt like I was robbed. You know, I was robbed of my leg. I was robbed of my vision, my hearing, obviously physically, all sorts of things. And now they're going to steal my career from me. Um, and again, joining the Marine Corps at 17 years old, that's all you know. Um, and like, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I, again, wanted to throw in the towel. And I decided that I didn't want to be awake on June 24th, 2013, uh, though basically one year after um, my initial injuries. And luckily I had friends around that caught on to it before anybody else. And uh, when I eventually woke, woke up in the hospital, my dad came to me and uh, with tears in his eyes, he said, you've got to be shitting me. The enemy couldn't kill you, and now you're gonna you're gonna do it for him. Um, and I think that's the only time that I've ever seen my dad cry. First of all, um, but I think that's the first time that I realized what I was doing was being selfish. Um, I thought I was gonna be doing everybody a favor by getting rid of me, and they don't have to deal with my recovery or my issues anymore. But the reality is, is my behavior was gonna impact them even more. Um, yeah. And if I did succeed in taking my own life, then. Like what kind of residual stuff's going to be left over. Um, so he did, and he lit the fire under my ass and gave me, you know, the tough love that I needed to get my together. Um, forever indebted to him for it. You know, like I said, again, lucky that I had the, have the parents that I have um, to be able to turn around and use that against me. I wouldn't be where I am without it. That's the medicine I purposely wanted to bring out in our conversation because we talk about veteran suicides so often in articles and there's so many things that are going on, but I wanted somebody listening to this to hear it from you, what that medicine really is. 
how does a veteran find this? Because I, I, I've found that like, even if they don't have the traumatic injury, they might come back that idle time, that down tempo life. And then the demons kind of creep in and then, and then they're thinking, oh, gosh, I'm just thinking effed up. So I can't possibly be of assistance to anybody else. I'm not the dad I used to be. I'm not the husband I probably should be. And is that's where the suicidal ideations or the think, you know, to put it bluntly, thinking about getting off on an off ramp right there saves everybody the pain of your traffic. But what can a veteran do without those words like from your father? How do we get the vets that are looking at the off ramp to hit the brakes? Well, the reality is, is my, yeah, my dad lit the fire, but I had to stoke it. I had to do everything. Nobody else is going to do this shit for me. Nobody can get better for me. Nobody else can find me all over again, mentally, physically, and emotionally. Like I had to do that. Um, and the reality is, is it's perspective and it's choices. In some cases, easier said than done. I totally understand that. Yeah. But my dad saying that made me realize that there's a lot of families of loved ones who never made it home looking at me. Well, she made it home. My kid didn't make it home or my husband or my dad didn't make it home or whoever. Mm. Um, and that sat with me because just as my family would be deeply affected, theirs are too. Um, and not only that, but I made it home. I'm broken, damaged, a little banged up and scarred up. Yeah. But I made it home. And there's a lot of people that never made it home. So the days that I'm whining and I'm being miserable and nothing's going right or I'm in pain or whatever it is, I do. I think about the guys and gals overhead looking down. Mm-hmm. Because it'd be selfish of me to sit down and throw a fit now. I wish every veteran dealing with those feelings could find the motivation that Kirsty did. When I asked if anybody else really helped her keep it together, she told me I had to talk with her friend Christine. Christine is the owner of a hip hair salon in Oceanside, California, and was described as her sassy friend. When I googled her, that's exactly what I found. A picture of her and Kirsty rocking black mini skirts and high-fiving. I mean, they look like they could have been a rock band. Christine had wild brown reddish curls about shoulder length and tats all down her arm. And a cute, squinting smile that kind of growled with punk rock attitude. Kirsty sort of looked like rock star Barbie with like a full back tattoo. They looked like the couple girls you see at a bar that are definitely a force to be reckoned with. So I was excited to give her a call. Now, as a buddy of hers, uh, you know, you confide in each other. What was difficult? What was what was some of the tougher things you guys had to share together as friends? We actually don't too often talk about things that are hard for each other. We are just smart asses. And so that's how I think we kind of know when something's going on with the other one, because we'll just make really awful jokes about things. Oddly enough, there is no like crying on each other's shoulder. It's just tough chick love, <laughs> I'd say. So but with her, I guess the fear would be, you know, would she be able to do everything that she wanted to do before? But the real fear, I think, came when the, she lost her knee, because then that's a game changer from what I've heard from having the amputation below the knee to above the knee. And the tough love thing, I I really feel because, I mean, I have friends and I think that's something about maybe veteran friends or people that, you know, have kind of been in that role. Our friends are like you. They're the tough ones. They're the ones that are salty, the ones that crack an inappropriate joke, the one that like... That's a segment from the podcast To War and Back. And I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll talk to you again next week on Eye on Veterans. 
Get started on your degree or certificate at University of Maryland Global Campus. But hurry, our next session starts September 23rd. Learn more at umgc.edu. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.